The reading this morning is from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down. It hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so we start this new series, and uh, we are, uh, we're entitling it Living Life Backwards, because this book of Ecclesiastes is really a book of, uh, of wisdom. It kind of is a, uh, a book written uh, from the perspective of an, of an old man who's reflecting on his life, and uh, for us, it'd be a way to kind of reverse engineer. We're a very young church. We are a very young church um, within that. And uh, so we find this book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, I have to be honest with you, I've read this book before a few times, and it's just kind of boggled the mind. I, I was always like, why is this book in the Bible? Um, especially if you read it in order. Like you read Proverbs, and there's just all this like sure wisdom that you can build your life on. And you're like, it just sounds so like, yes, this is, this is wise. This is how not to be a fool. This is how, how to be wise. This is how to build a good life. And then the next book dismantles all of it. And <laughs> it's like, this is like, seems so the opposite of Proverbs. It just seems so contradictory to this other book of wisdom that we have. Yesterday, I watched um, Lawson, my son. Uh, we went out to Meadowburn Park and, and we're uh, walking through the woods and things like that. And Lawson was pretending um, to be a spy. Uh, there was this photo shoot going on uh, for a wedding. Uh, uh, the bride and groom were there. And so we were over in this other part of the woods, and Lawson had his stick, and uh, you know, he was like trying to sneak up on the bride while she's getting her picture taken. You could just see him in his own little world, and he was calling for backup and you know, all this kind of stuff and trying not to be seen. And he was in his own imaginary world, um, as he often is, uh, and that's good. It's a good place to be. Um, as, as a six-year-old boy. Um, and we have this world of imagination, right? A world of pretend that opens up to inspire. It cultivates a, a kind of real-world understanding uh, of how the world works. If you listen to uh, kids, uh, often I'll, uh, I'll hear Lawson in the bathtub, and he's got a million toys in the bathtub with him, um, and he's got his little action figures, and they'll be having a conversation, but he's doing all the talking, right? So he'll, he'll be filling in both parts of the conversation. And you'll hear him, like, scolding the other one, and this one's saying thank you and please. Like, he's working out relationships in his little imaginary world. Uh, and that's an important part of how we develop and explore. 
But there is a difference between the real world and the make-believe world. And sometimes as a kid, as you transition, that can be confusing. Um, but even as adults, the real world can be confusing. And Ecclesiastes comes along. It's this book in the Bible that explodes our make-believe world. It explodes this all. It jolts us into the realization that not everything in our world is clean and as tidy as we would like it to be. It's not as, as, uh, as, as clean lines as our make-believe worlds, as our fantasies, as our imaginations would like to create. Ecclesiastes kind of wakes us out of our sleep and forces us to look at the world as it really is. Something that we don't like to be doing very often. Um, our very own C.S. Lewis, um, he's well known for his, his great prose, uh, wrote amazing books uh, like Mere Christianity, The Four Loves, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia. Um, but when his wife passed away, he was a beloved uh, thinker, Christian thinker, right? Heralded by theologians and pastors and all of this. But when his wife passed away, uh, he wrote a book called A Grief Observed. And here's a man racked with grief and loss. And here's some of the words he wrote. He said this. He says, talk to me about the truth of religion, and I'll gladly listen. Talk to me about the duty of religion, and I'll listen submissively. But don't come talking to me about the consolations of religion. Or I'll suspect that you don't understand. He says this, he says, when you are happy, so happy you have no sense of needing him, speaking of God, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to God with your, dis uh, go to, to him in your need, when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face. And a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. You might as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. And then he wrote this about afflictions. It doesn't really matter whether you grip the arm of the dentist chair or let your hands lie in your lap. The drill drills on. Those words surprise you? The words that we just read from Scripture? What we just did. We just read these words. Vanity of vanities. Your, your translation, some translations would say meaningless, meaningless. All is meaningless. And then we all said, praise be to God. That's what just happened in this room. Are we allowed to say such things? Are we allowed to admit like C.S. Lewis did that sometimes it doesn't seem like these things make sense? I think one of the purposes of Ecclesiastes is to utterly shatter sentimental Christianity, bumper sticker Christianity, coffee cup Christianity. And listen, those verses that end up on those things are, are fine and well and they're true, but they're, they're an illusion. They're not the full story. They're half-truths. Listen to even some of the words that we'll read in this book as we go on. Words like this. I hated life because what is done under the sun is grievous to me. For all is meaningless and a striving after the wind. Put that on your mug. 
For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast, the animals, is the same. As one dies, so does the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantages over the beasts. For all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from dust, and to dust all return. In chapter 4, again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Say the inspired words of God in the Bible. Don't be overly righteous. Don't be too wise. What's going on here? Can we really talk this way? Liberals often will deal with these kind of uh, troubling kind of this book saying, listen, this shouldn't even be in the Bible. They deny its inspiration. This isn't really from God. This is just the, uh, the thoughts of a, a cynical old Jewish guy. And evangelicals would never do such a thing, right? But how we deal with it is we say it's inspired, but then we just completely ignore it. So we have a clean conscience, but it's to the detriment of our maturity. The book is here for a reason. Let me give us just a few reasons why we should study the book of Ecclesiastes uh, before we get into the text. Um, I'm going to give us five of them. One, because it's honest about the troubles of life. It's honest about the troubles of life. And this is true not just of this book, but of all of the scripture. One thing I love about the Bible is it doesn't, it doesn't kind of candy coat everything. It doesn't try to sugarcoat what life is actually like. It doesn't cover up the mistakes of the heroes of the stories. Great men and women of faith were still... Men and women, broken men and women who failed and failed often. And so this is a book that's honest about the troubles. Herman Melvin, who wrote Moby Dick, he said of Ecclesiastes that it is the truest of all books. It's the truest of all books. It rings true. I think the reason why I've read it before and maybe not quite made sense of it, I think it's a book you have to have lived a little bit to start to make sense of. And so... Welcome to my midlife crisis series. <laughs> I kind of only half joke about that because, like, uh, I'd actually am reading this now. I'm like, this is gold. This is great. What is the meaning of life? Why am I so unhappy? What am I doing on earth? Um, are all questions that the, the teacher wrestles with in this text. Um, and the good thing is that is he's written it for the people that are coming behind him, the younger generation, um, like me. Um, this is the only book one person said of the Bible that seems like it was written on a Monday morning. <laughs> Whoever wrote this book clearly hadn't had coffee yet. But it acts as this back door that allows us to have sad or skeptical thoughts that we might never let through the front door of our faith. Thoughts that we all have. Doubts that we all have, if we're really being honest with ourselves. And hopefully as we grow and hopefully as we mature, those doubts change, they wane, 
But then you're faced with new doubts. Uh, the doubts of, of, of your youth just get replaced with new doubts in new seasons of life. And so this book brings us face to face with this. Second reason to study Ecclesiastes is to learn what will happen to us if we choose what the world has to offer instead of what God gives us. Why make your own mistakes when you can learn from Solomon in this text? Um, it says in verse 1, the words of the preacher, the preacher, um, that's the word Ecclesiastes. Um, this, this preacher is an Ecclesiastes uh, it comes from, from the, this is a, a Greek translation of a Hebrew word, right? It, it's the same word that we get church from, ecclesia, the assembly. And so uh, an Ecclesiastes is someone who would assemble, who would gather the people together, and he would stand in front and teach. So he's a teacher, or more probably, as, as our translation has, a preacher, because who he is assembled, assembled together is the people of God. And so here stands the preacher in front of the gathering, now an old man reflecting on his life. Did Solomon write the book of Ecclesiastes? No one knows for sure. Um, We know who wrote the Song of Songs because it tells you. We know that Solomon wrote some of the Proverbs because it actually says. But here it's uh, a little bit more kind of hidden in disguise. So we don't know for sure. Um, some people up until really the 19th century, it was attributed to Solomon. It's probably the easiest, plainest reading of that. Um, and yet there are some things that you're like, mm, that doesn't sound like Solomon would say something like that. Um, and so sometimes, some, in, in more recent times, it seems like there seems to be a narrator that we get in the section I'm going to look at today. And then essentially for the whole rest of the book until the last few verses is this kind of monologue meant to be Solomon or Solomon himself. Certainly as we read through it, it seems like this is meant to be us learning from Solomon. But what we do know is um, that these are the words inspired by the Holy Spirit. And in the very last chapter, it says these are written by one shepherd, um, God himself. And so we learn um, what will happen to us as we live apart from God. The third reason is because it asks us the biggest and hardest questions that many of us still have in our lives today. What is the meaning of life? Like, why are we here? What is our purpose? Are we just random? Why am I so unhappy at times? Does God really care about any of this? Is he just some chess master in the sky moving pieces on a board? Why is there so much suffering and injustice in the world? Why do those who who purport injustices seem to get away with it? Is life really worth living? Fourthly, it'll help us to worship uh, the one true God better. In this book, for all of its disappointments, for all of its skeptical thoughts that this book helps us wrestle with, It also teaches us many great truths about God. We're going to see God as a mighty creator. We see him as a sovereign Lord, that he is transcendent, that he is the all-powerful ruler of the universe. And so as this book helps us to get to know ourselves better, um, it will also help us get to know God better and worship him better. And then fifthly, it teaches us how to live for God and not just for ourselves. Um, 
One of the things that you do as a kid, as you move from your imaginary world into the real world, is you build a worldview, um, how you actually see the world. Um, and this book's going to help us build a God-centered worldview. It's going to talk all, uh, a lot about money, uh, about sex, about power, about work, and it's going to talk a lot about death. So for all the emos in the room, you're welcome. He's going to help us build a worldview, and he uses this phrase that we'll see in this passage that we're looking at this morning, and almost 30 more times throughout the book, he's going to use this phrase, under the sun, under the sun, Uh, and this is like a shorthand term for life on earth. It's what life is like from a mere human perspective when we limit our gaze to our world without ever lifting our eyes to see the beauty and the glory of God above the sun. And so he's going to describe life over and over again as life under the sun. From one perspective, a perspective from below, a perspective that doesn't actually acknowledge that there is a God and a creator above and beyond and through the sun. And so that's an important phrase uh, that we need to keep in mind as we continue to look through this book over and over again, under the sun, under the sun. So let's look at um, this first section. These first couple verses, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. This is another probably key as to why this is probably Solomon or meant to uh, be pointing to Solomon. Uh, He was a son of David. He was a king in Jerusalem. In verse 12, he says king over Israel. Um, There was really only three of those before Israel gets broken into two parts. Uh, uh, Saul, David, and Solomon. And so the fact that he's the son of David rules out the first two. But listen to what he says. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, vanity is not a word that we use uh, a lot. We think of vanity as someone who's vain or self-centered. And certainly there's um, you know, elements to what we'll see in this text. But the Hebrew word here is hevel. Um, Hevel, hevel, everything is hevel. And as we sang the song this morning, um, it's a word really for vapor, for vapor or for mist or for smoke. And so you think of the idea of life is hevel. It's like, there's the smoke. I can see it. It's real, but it's gone. That's gone really quickly. It doesn't last. It doesn't stay around very long. It's a fleeting. It's there, but I I can't get it. I can't grasp it. I I can't hold it. It's ephemeral. It's enigmatic. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not substantial. I can't get a hold of it. I can't, I can't get my, my mind around it. It's fleeting. It's futile. And so, if your translation says that it's meaningless, it's not that life is without meaning. It's just that it's, it's a vanity. It's, it's, it's a vapor. It's a smoke. We can't grasp it. It's hard to understand. It's enigmatic. It's hevel. And he says, all is vanity. All is hevel. Verse 3, he begins to make his case for this kind of emptiness of existence. And he asks this question, what does man gain 
by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. What does a man gain? That, that word gain there is really the word for profit. It's a, it's a commercial kind of word, work. And he, he asked the question that most of us would ask as we enter into a new job. Is it worth it? When I'm done with all of my work, when I'm done with the sweat, at the end of the day, what is left over? When all the bills are paid, when all the overhead is, is taken care of, what is the profit that is left over? And is that profit worth the effort? Is it worth it? What will I have to show for it? And his answer is nothing. Nothing. There's nothing. There's nothing to show. What do I gain by all the toil at which I toil? Nothing. It's a going around in circles. It's hevel. It's vanity. It's meaningless. It's vapor. We like to talk about progress. We like to talk about economic development, technological advancing. The progressiveness of our of our civilization, but in the end, the preacher would say, it's a myth. It's a myth. It seems like a progression. It seems like things are going in a direction, but it's a myth. He goes on then to build his case. In verse four, he says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. And notice how he uses what he says there. We would normally say something comes and goes, right? That's progressive. Something comes and then it goes. But that's not what he says. He says a generation goes and then another one comes. See, if something comes and then goes, it's this, it's this kind of um, progressive kind of things. But if something goes and then another one comes, the emphasis then is on replacement. He says we just get replaced Like this generation is gone, another one just replaces it. Then that one goes, and another one just replaces it. And it's the earth that stays forever. So usually there's around four generations kind of alive at the same time, right? So currently you've got like the babies and little kids in the room, generation Z, Z, whatever. That's what we're calling it for now. We eventually come up with different names. Then you have millennials, that's probably most of you. Then you have my generation, Generation X, and then some boomers in, uh, are, are around. Any boomers in here? Might be one or two. I'm not going to make eye contact. <laughs> right? And here's the thing. Uh, I, you don't really start thinking about this. So, so I'm, in the third, I'm in the third generation of the fourth. Boomers, guess what boomers are doing? Sorry, boomers. Dying. That, they're going. That means I'm next. I'm the next one up. That's why you start thinking about Ecclesiastes. You don't think about generations as like, oh, what's the new technology? Yeah, this iPad, whatever. And then, you know, then you're in your 20s and you're, yeah, you're still having a good time. And then you like, you're like, midlife crisis. You have to start thinking about like these things. Who can name your grandparents? Raise your hand if you can name your grandparents. If you know your grandparents' name. Great. Keep your hand up if you can name your great-grandparents. Okay? Still most of us. Keep your hand up if you can name your great-great-grandparents. Two, three. Great-great-great-grandparents. 
Okay, that's it. We're done. That's it. Four. Four generations, and you can't even name your own family. You don't even know your own family. Can anybody name the pharaohs to whom the pyramids were built? Ah, the pyramids, they're still there. They exist. For who? Anybody? No? No takers on that one? How many prime ministers can you, can you go back? How many? I mean, how many can you actually go back? There's been 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. 13 since Winston Churchill. How many of those can you name? Leaders of our country. I think you can, I, me, I got maybe five or six out of 13. Edward Heath, never heard of him. <laughs> never heard of him. Anybody else know Edward Heath? Okay, a few of you. Good, good. <laughs> good, good, good. It doesn't take long. It doesn't take long. Before people start to be forgotten. And yet the earth remains. Uh, Jerome said it this way. He says, what is more vain than this vanity? That the earth which was made for humans stays, but the humans themselves, the lords of the earth, suddenly dissolve into dust. We just come and we go. We're forgotten. We're replaced. And the preacher says, man, this is vanity. What's the purpose of life if I'm just gone and I just get replaced? Verse 5, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. So he starts to look to nature, the cycles of nature. It rises, it goes down, it, it hastens. The, the word hastens here that is used is, is literally the word pants. The sun's like out of breath. It's panting. It's weary. Because it just keeps going the same place every single time. Pink Floyd said something similar in a song uh, off their album, The Dark Side of the Moon. He says, so you run and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking. Racing around to come up behind you again. The sun is the same in a relative way, but you're older, shorter of breath, and one day closer to death. That sounds like Ecclesiastes to me. He's looking at the cycles of life and just the monotony of life. It's the same repetitive cycle. In verse 6, the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. He says the wind fails to accomplish anything either. It's just like the sun. Now where they are in Palestine, you often get a northerly um, wind and a southerly wind. Maybe referring to the sun going north and uh, east and west the su- and the wind going north and south like the compass. But his point is the wind that we like to think is so free, right? Oh, the wind is just so free. It goes wherever it wants. It just blows wherever it wants. He's like, no, it doesn't. Jet stream, currents, wind currents, they're the same. They're just repetitive. It's just the same thing over and over and over again. You know when hurricanes are coming. They come at the same time every year and they go to the same place every year. Even the things that we think are free are in cycles. In verse 7, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the stream flows, there they will flow again. 
Now, he's not thinking like the water cycle here. That's a, probably a better way to think about that, the way that water provides for us. More than likely, he's looking at the Jordan River running into the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea's landlocked. It doesn't flow out to anywhere else. That's why it's the Dead Sea. And he's like, for, for generations, this river's been running into the sea, and yet it never fills up. It doesn't ever overflow. Where is the progress? I was just in this rut. What does it profit? We had a pet hamster for a while. I don't recommend that. Not a good, not a good investment in your time or anything else in your life. And unless it teaches you the lesson of the hamsters, what hamsters do, right? Because they live in this smelly, smelly cage, but they have this wheel and they love it. And they just get on the hamster wheel. And that's it. That's their existence. Like, it's just a hamster on a wheel. And we use that kind of imagery for just like meaninglessness. Just expending all its little furry-legged energy for nothing. It's like running on a treadmill. Right? Uh, Oh, yeah, I did 10 miles today. No, No, you didn't. You did the equivalent of 10 miles. You didn't go anywhere. And this is, the, this is what the teacher does. He says, where is the profit in this? Where is the progress? Now, this might seem reasonable questions for you and for me or for people living in slums. You're like, yeah, I get that. Those are good questions. Those are questions that we should ask. But that's not who's asking the questions. Who's asking the questions is one of the wisest, richest, most powerful people that has ever walked the, walked the earth, right? Because you and I, we tend to think, uh, my life is without meaning or it's monotonous or it's whatever because I don't have fill in the blank. And if I just had fill in the blank, we'll look at more of that next week. This is, let me just, let me just give you a description of Solomon from 1 Kings. Um, this is from 1 Kings 3. The, uh, God had asked Solomon, kind of like a genie in a lamp situation, what do you want? And I'll give it to you. And this is his answer. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I might discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, this your great people? And it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I will give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I will give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, I will lengthen your days." He asked for wisdom, that he would be able to rule his people well. And God said, not only will I give you that, I'm going to make you unparalleled to anybody else in, in wealth and in power. This, was, this is Solomon's provisions for one day. Solomon's provisions for one day was 30 cores of fine flour. One core is about 220 liters. So multiply that by 30. 60 cores of meal. 10 fatted oxen. 20 pasture-fed cattle, 
That's a lot of steak. A hundred sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. One day. That's just what he needed for one day for his house. Now, he needed that because he had like 700 wives. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates to the tip shafts of, of Gaza, over the kings west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. He was living in a peaceful, prosperous time. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers um, supplied provisions for King Solomon. That's taxes. And for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month, they let nothing be lacking. He had everything he wanted. Barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds, they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understand beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than any other men. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. This is the man that says everything is hevel. This is all fleeting. This is all vanity. Ultimately meaningless. A man with ultimate fame, ultimate wealth, absolute power. So he's a king, and a king back then doesn't have to go through a parliament. What he says is law. And he's the one asking these questions. In verse 8 All things, all things are full of weariness. Really, Solomon? The man who has everything at his fingertips? The man who has all understanding more than any other human that's ever lived? You're weary? A man cannot utter it. The eyes is not, the eyes not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with with hearing. He says it's all weary. There's a song sung by Joe, a dock worker in Old Man River, called Old Man River. And he says this. He says, you can see him on the Mississippi River, the mighty Mississippi River in North America. He says, I gets weary and sick of trying. I'm tired of living and I'm scared of dying. But old man river, he just keeps rolling along. The earth stays the same. The, the waters just keep rolling into the sea. And life for me, he says, is just weariness. And it's true, right? We mow our lawns, and then you have to mow them again. I get a haircut like every five weeks. I got to go get another one. For those of you that shave, you have to do that all, like you have to, it just is, is, it's this monotonous kind of thing. Tomorrow, you'll wake up, that alarm clock will go off. You'll get out of bed, maybe make some coffee. 
Put on your clothes. Fight traffic into work. Do the same work that you do next to the same people that you do. Maybe go to lunch to the same one of three places that you always go to. Pack the same lunch that you always pack. Go home, fight traffic home. Kind of stumble across the finish line tired. Maybe watch some Netflix. Scroll for like an hour trying to figure out what to watch on Netflix. Watch what you always watch anyway. The office, (laughs) friends. Right? Eat some dinner, collapse into bed, and then tomorrow it's Tuesday. I was in California this last week, and it's so tempting, right, to be in these beautiful places where the sun is out and it's warm, and, and you're, not, you're kind of on holiday. So some of that was work, but I had a few days in between traveling up the coast, and you're like, ah, oh, this is just paradise. This is amazing. And yet everyone who lives there has to do what I have to do. They have to get up and go to work on Monday. They don't just drive around looking at the mountains and taking it all in. They have their life that they have to continue to do just like you and me. And Solomon says, what is the point? He says, the eye can't get enough seeing. Imagine that in his day. He'd be blown away by our options now, right? Of what we get to see entertainment-wise. Netflix. Now there's even pressure to see certain series. Have you seen that series yet? I have seven series of other TV shows I haven't seen yet. Before it was like, oh no, I was busy that night. You're not, now you have no excuse. Watch it anytime on demand. Right? Our phone, endless things in front of our eyes. Listening, the, he says the ear is never full of hearing. And that's true, you have endless Spotify lists. Imagine just the things that we can see and hear. TV, YouTube, Netflix, Amazon Prime, the cinema, Sky Box Set, Spotify, iTunes, iPod, iPhone, podcast. It never ends. He says, I'm weary, I'm weary. In 9 and 10 then, he says, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which can be said, see, this is new? It's already been in the ages before us. And this is true too. There's technically new things, but nothing has really changed. So I'll be 44 in two months. So I was born in the early 70s. means I'm a child of the 80s. I survived the 90s. Right? High school, university, started my career in the 90s. Then the new millennial came. Now into the, you know, we got through the noughties, into the teens, into midlife. And here's what I can tell you. There is no new fashion. None. Like, no one wears trousers on their head. Like, nothing's been invented in that way. Like, there's no new fashion. What is avant-garde fashion right now is just recycled stuff from a couple decades ago. Vintage. (laughs) Not vintage. It's just stuff from the 80s. It's just stuff from the 70s. And that stuff came from, like, you know, the, the, the 50s. Like, there's nothing new. We have historical amnesia. And if it ever seems like there's something new, it's only because we've forgotten what happened before. So I grew up, uh, some of my education was in America, right? And so you learn how America was discovered. 
like in the 1400s, this guy, Christopher Columbus, came and he discovered the new world. But there was the Anasazi people who built a large city in what is now New Mexico with five-story buildings a thousand years ago. The Cahokia people, which would be near modern St. Louis now, had a city of 40,000 people. It was the largest city in North America until Philadelphia passed it in the 19th century. There a thousand years ago, before Christopher Columbus showed up. The Norse Vikings had already been there before Christopher Columbus had been there. And he discovers the new world. It wasn't new. It was new to him. My brother and I have only had like two arguments in our life. One of them was this very argument. I had left home and I came back and I'm like, oh, that's new. And he's like, no, it isn't. It's been there for like four years now. And I'm like, that's new. It's the first time I've seen that. That's, it's new. He's like, it's new to you. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm the one that said it. So it is, what I said is true. It's new from my perspective. And he's like, it's not, but it's not true because it's, it's not new. And I was like, okay, all right. So he's right, though. It's, it was new to me. I mean, I was right, too, technically. <laughs> we were both right. Call it draw. <laughs> right? But it, was, but it wasn't new. It was just new to me. And this is what he's getting at. Under the sun, there's nothing new. It's just new to you. Oh, the Internet's new. It's just a more convenient, faster way to get the same information that you could have gotten before. We had libraries before. We had encyclopedias before. Like, people knew stuff before. Nothing fundamentally new. And this is what he says under the sun. <laughs> There's nothing new under the sun. This is the experience of human futility apart from God. If you've ever looked at a tapestry, right, these beautiful tapestries, but if you look at it from behind, imagine a tapestry above, and you're only seeing it from underneath. It's just a mess, Right? It, it doesn't, there's, there's nothing coherent there. There's just strings that are hanging and, and fabric that's going one way and the other. And this is life under the sun. You can only see it from this perspective. It doesn't make any sense. It's just futile. You have to get out from underneath that and look at it from above. And from that perspective, you get a whole different picture of what it is. It actually makes sense. It's something beautiful. This is be the, the experience of this book. If you were to fast forward to the end, when he summarizes the whole thing, it's this. That there is a God who rules over and above, that transcends and beyond the sun. And so what seems like this meaningless uh, hevel of a lifestyle isn't the last word. The reason the preacher shows us the weariness of our existence, making us more disillusioned with our life under the sun, is so that we will not expect to find meaning and satisfaction in earthly things, but only in God himself above the sun, beyond the sun. This does not mean that if we believe in God, all our troubles will be over. Or that we'll never find, uh, we'll never feel again the weariness or the vanity of life under the sun. For one thing, believers often forget to remember God. But when we do, we're right back under the sun again. This is our experience too, even as believers, as we forget. But Ecclesiastes opens up the possibility of an above the sun perspective that we can have. 
that can bring joy, that can bring refreshment to life as we learn that everything does matter, that life isn't just Hevel. It's not just fleeting. There is meaning that is there. The preacher, in this perspective, fails to look at the natural world and see any kind of progress. But there is another perspective. The psalmist would say in Psalm 19, he looks at those same heavens where he says the sun is just going in circles, the wind is just blowing around. The psalmist says the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. With God, it changes our perspective on how we see things. To prove a point, he looks at that same old son and he says, it comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man running its course with joy. Looking at the same thing, but with different perspectives. Whether the son seems to make any progress or not, it bears witness to the joy and strength of its creator. So the psalmist would then say, from the rising of the sun until the going down of the same, the way the sun keeps going, it's the name of the Lord that is to be praised. He lays the beams of his chambers on the water. He makes the clouds of his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. The psalmist is able to see something different because his heart was connected to God. And Solomon At this point in his life, apostate, apart from God, had given his heart to foreign um, wives who had turned his heart to foreign gods, says this is all meaningless. He's lost perspective. And so for him, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new. It's all the same. And yet Solomon doesn't have the last word. Thank God Ecclesiastes isn't the last book in our Bible. (laughs) Because we get plenty of new things that happen. Even in the Old Testament, Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God even told the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, behold, I am doing a new thing. There's going to be something new, Solomon. It's not just the same old, same old. It's not that nothing new has ever come. I'm going to do something new. And Jesus himself steps into that world as the something new that God was doing. Something outside from, from, from above and beyond the sun penetrates into our world. Injected from above. And Jesus comes and he himself says, I am establishing a new covenant. New life that will spring up from the tomb. I will give you a new heart. I will make you a new creation. You will be a new self. And in the end in Revelation, he says, behold, I am making all things new. From Solomon, the perspective is that all is vanity. All is the same. All is old. There's nothing new. And Jesus comes and he flips it. He says, no, I am making all things new. What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard. The language of Solomon. Oh, you can see everything. You can hear everything. It doesn't matter. Nor the heart of man imagined. This is what God has prepared for those who love him. It is those who love, who love Jesus, who love God, 
who are able then to see and to hear and have hearts that are able to imagine things that Solomon was never able to imagine at this point in his life. This life described under the sun is not the final existence. He asked the question in his beginning argument, what does man gain by all the toil under the sun? And Jesus asked a similar question, but he he flips this on his head. Jesus asked the question, what does it profit a man? Same word, gain. What does it gain a man? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? Yeah, lose his soul. And as the preacher is writing these words, he certainly seems to be in danger of that very thing. Gaining the whole world. Anything his heart desired will learn next week. He gave. He gave it to his own heart. He said no to nothing. That sounds like gaining the whole world to me. And yet at the end, his soul said, it's all Hevel. It's all meaningless. This is our introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes. And I want to, I want to just end with this last verse in 11 for this section, his opening poem. He says, There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after him. But we know that's not true, is it? Yeah, there are lots of things that get forgotten. In a thousand years, in a thousand years, what are the main things? What are the main things that we remember? We remember like 9 11. Pearl Harbor, the Great Wars, right? Anybody, can anybody, like, I mean, what, what wars do we really find meaningful that happened a thousand years ago? Will anybody talk about those things a thousand years from now? Will our country exist a thousand years from now? And yet there is one thing that we do that we remember. Because Jesus told us to remember it. And he gave us a way to remember it. In a real simple way. In a way that in a thousand years from now, we'd still be able to do. Take bread and break it. And remember my body broken for you. Take wine and drink it. And in that, remember my blood shed for you. And in remembering the old, in remembering what has been done, we look forward to what will be done. All things being made new. So for those of us that are followers of Jesus, we come to the table. We remember this deposit of his body broken and his blood shed for us as a promise of the new resurrection, as a promise that this world is not all that there is, that life under the sun is not our only hope. So we come this morning with whatever brokenness Whatever heaviness, whatever cynicism that you bring here this morning, bring it and bring it to the table. It's okay. God's big enough to deal with those things. But we come to the table to be put back into perspective again that this life isn't the only life. This existence, no matter how hard we toil, is not the final word. The final word has already been spoken.
It's finished. And so we come again to the table to worship Christ, to be reminded of our future hope, our future glory, and the promise of a, of a, a present presence of Christ even at the table that we come to now. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, wisdom literature that just helps us look into uh, the mirror, that helps us look into uh, just our current existence, into our life, and just be really honest with it. Um, That even in the times of joy, even in the times where we think we're just crushing it, um, eventually things come full circle and we feel like we're being crushed. That even those who seem like they have everything still have sleepless nights in the quietness of their own heart and mind, wondering, is this all? Is this everything? Father, sometimes your judgment on us is to just let us have whatever we want. And yet in that, there's a mercy in that we hopefully see that even getting everything that we want, it doesn't, doesn't satisfy. And so we come once again to the thing that, that will. Bread and wine, your body and blood. A reminder of your sacrifice that does satisfy, of a future hope, of a life beyond this one um, where there will be no more futility, where there will be no more hevel, where there'll be no more striving and toiling for nothing. Come, Lord Jesus.